Well, we are continuing to walk. <clears throat> we are continuing to walk through First Samuel on Sunday evenings, and um, it's uh, it's been a blessing to me because it's been quite some time um, since I've been through First Samuel in twenty. 19, I read through the Bible in the CSB, which is a Christian Standard Bible. I was really tempted to switch to that, but I know that when I came here, I told all of you the ESV, and some of you went out and bought Bibles, and then for me to switch on you uh, might be uh, not too considerate, but just a great uh, rendering of the original languages there. Uh, but, um, but this is the first time I guess I've been through 1 Samuel since then. And, uh, and so tonight we're going to be in chapter 4, and again, as long as the chapters are short enough to read them uh, easily, I think that's the best thing to do, because it's a story, and in order to read the story, you have to read the story. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 4 and see what is going on here. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And remember Samuel, of course, is the priest, it seems, that God is raising up. And the word of the Lord came through him to all Israel. This is God's affirmation of him as the priest. Um, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who had killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Of course, what they're thinking is a defeat on the battlefield is evidence of God's judgment on us. That's the way that they're thinking. Let us bring the ark. So here's their solution. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people of Israel have a problem. They've been defeated in battle, and now the kind of solution that they're looking for tells us about their heart, tells us about what's going on inside of their hearts. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, if this is a movie and this happens, do you think this is the, the good, happy music? That Hophni and Phinehas are there with the Ark of the... Or is this the cello, right? The cello comes out and things are looking grim and sad. Probably the cello. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Maybe they think, hey, our good luck charm is here, right? Now God has to be on our side. We got the Ark with us. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they learned that the ark had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Uh, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So it seems like God's word has come true. The nations have heard of what God did for His people in Egypt. And now they're afraid. Take courage and be men, old Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought 
And Israel was defeated. They were defeated by the enemy who was afraid of them. How could this be? And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter. For there fell, men of, uh, of, uh, there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Which might be the silver lining. I don't know. One hates to say that. Verse 12. The man of Benjamin ran from, uh, ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, they cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Remember last chapter, his eyes were dim. His vision was failing and we said that was perhaps a picture of his failing moral vision, his failing physical vision. Now Eli was 98 and let's see, verse 17. He who brought the news had answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Nothing but bad news. Nothing but bad news. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel." because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So, I know that I made a few comments on the way reading through that, um, to break it up a little bit and to provide a little bit of commentary, but uh, what, what do we learn here? Well, the first thing uh, in this particular scene, we see what happens when people presume upon God. When people believe that they have God, uh, you know, um, right where they want Him. Further, God makes good on His promises, though, to provide an answer to the unrepentant sin among His people. However, even the seeming defeat of God's people over their disobedience is not all that it appears to be. God is still working, his promises to Israel are still sure and true, and I hate to say that you're going to have to wait until next week to find the good news, but for now, perhaps uh, a little bad news is enough to meditate on and see what the Lord might, uh, might teach us. So, here's the first heading. Theological concern turns to superstition. What does this mean? Sometimes, good doctrine, a desire to know what's true... A desire to do what's right can, inside of our hearts, get twisted just a little bit. Just a little bit of twist, and it can, it can turn into superstition, right? I remember, <laughs> I remember in high school uh, really um, wanting to, 
I don't know, get some answers in, in, in my life or some direction. And I remember reading the Bible late at night uh, and uh, before I went to bed. And then instead of taking the Bible and setting it over where it went, I thought, I, I think I'll just sleep with my Bible. And maybe that'll demonstrate to God how much I mean it, right? This, this little superstition, if I just sleep with the Bible. I did this also, also with my putter when I was trying to be a good golfer in high school. If I just sleep with my putter, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow and be a better golfer or something like that. It didn't work, by the way. I was, I was a room temperature golfer at best. But this is what the people of Israel are dealing with. They think that perhaps... They can treat God as if he's a genie in a bottle to be summoned, to be used. And it doesn't work out for them. They ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? This is the theological concern. They're wondering, well, wonder if we need to do some self-reflection, if we need to do some hard searching because we have just been defeated on the battlefield by some people that we ought not to lose to, right? So their question is a good one. Why is it that this has happened to us? Their question is totally appropriate. But their answer, the way that they seek to solve their problem, is not pleasing to God. And that's why I've entitled this, this lesson, A Serious Problem, The Wrong Solution. So we see here, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and, uh, and save us, from the power of our enemies. Now notice, they're not saying let's, let's cry out to God and let's, let's put on the sackcloth and ashes and let's rip our clothing and let's prostrate ourselves before Him in repentance and say, God, would you forgive us for whatever sin is among us? Would you keep us from the consequences of the sin of Hophni and Phinehas? They're not seeking to repent of their sin. What they're trying to do is bring the ark. Maybe the ark will save us. They're not even talking about God saving them. They're talking about the arcs. Maybe the ark can save us, right? It worked last time. Instead of rightly diagnosing the problem in their land, which was their immoral religious leaders, that was their problem. They had these immoral religious leaders. And instead of rightly diagnosing the problem, the people turned to a superstitious solution. Maybe there's a magical power in the ark. And if we just bring the ark to the right place, the Lord's not going to let his ark, the Lord's not going to let his ark be captured. Well, he might if he wants to teach you a lesson, is what they learn. And this way they treat the ark like a talisman, or which is like a good luck charm, a relic, something like that. This is not without reason. The ark has been associated with, with success in battle before. If, I know that we didn't, we didn't walk all the way through Joshua, but in Joshua 6, this occurs. Um, uh, let's see. I'll just read this. Joshua 6, uh, verse 6, and it says this. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. At least they're crying out to the Lord, right? When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. So this is what happens when you repent the right way. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites, whose land you do, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came out and sat there under the terebinth at Ophrah, 
which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press uh, to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our father fathers recounted to us. Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that in the past, uh, the ark had been present when there was military success. And so they thought they could just reproduce it. They could just reverse engineer it. They thought, well, these things happened when the good days were here, so let's just do those good things and maybe it'll bring the good days back right? Doesn't quite work that way because God is not one to be manipulated. Why don't we... Uh, I, I've, I've uh, uh, copied and pasted a, a, a number of good quotes here from the Great Awakenings uh, in America, in, in colonial America, um, just to try to bring a little bit of application I want to read these things to you. Hopefully you'll see the power in them. This is Jonathan Edwards, who the Encyclopedia Britannica says was the uh, most, uh, I don't know, the, the most adept mind in American history, certainly in his century and perhaps since then. Jonathan Edwards writing in a faithful narrative. This is just his biography, his telling of what happened in New England during the first great awakening, a massive movement of God that was not anticipated, uh, that was, and, and keep in mind, the communities in colonial America were, were, were not connected to one another. M certainly not in the way that we're connected today. Something can happen in California five minutes from now, and before we're out of here, everybody will know about it on our phones but what was happening in colonial America in the 1740s was that God was doing a work in different communities all across uh, New England. And many of them did not know that, that these works of God, these great revivals were happening in the different communities and, and even across the different colonies. But they were happening all at the same time. And so Jonathan Edwards is, is telling about this massive movement of God, says this, the greater part, he's talking about people who, um, who, who were coming to faith, the greater part seemed to be at that very time very insensible of the things of religion and engaged in other cares and pursuits. Just after my grandfather, his, his grandfather's name was Solomon Stoddard, he was a pastor as well, and Jonathan Edwards went to pastor his grandfather's church, and Jonathan Edwards was eventually run out of his grandfather's church. Anyway, just after my grandfather's death, it seemed to be a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. And he, he's remembering, when my grandfather was a pastor, people just seemed to be very worldly. Nobody seemed to be very interested in the things of God. He said licentiousness, which just means taking license, doing whatever you want to. Perhaps it even has sexual overtones. Licentiousness for, for some years greatly prevailed among the youth of the town. There were many of them much addicted to night walking, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds bad in New England. Walking around at night doesn't sound very good. Nothing happens good after dark. And frequenting the tavern and lewd practices, wherein some, by their example, exceedingly corrupted others. 
He's talking about what the spiritual climate is. And we think, friends, that the Lord can never do a revival in our day because there's so much apathy and so much godlessness around us. Friends, God can do it anytime He wants. Because human nature and the human need has not changed for all of our medical and technological advances over the last three or four hundred years. We still have the same spiritual needs. But he says this, particularly, I was surprised with the relation of a young woman who had been one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. I don't know what a company keeper is, but it sounds bad. When she came to me, I had never heard what she was, that she was become in any wise serious. Now, I think that's 1700s language for, I didn't really take her very seriously when she came saying that she was a believer now. But by the conversation that I then had with her, it appeared to me that what she gave an account of was a glorious work of God's infinite power and sovereign grace, and that God had given her a new heart, truly broken and sanctified. I could not then doubt it, and I have seen much of in my acquaintance with her since then to confirm it. In other words, since this conversation I had with her, I've seen her bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It has confirmed that, yes, it seems God has saved her. And another quote, all the conversation in all the companies, this is what happened by the end of this awakening. This is how he described a village that he knew of. All the conversation in all companies upon all occasions was upon these things only, things of God, he's, he's saying. Unless so much as were necessary for the people, carrying out their ordinary secular business, other discourse then of the thing of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. You know what he's saying here? He's saying if you walked into Dollar General, everybody in the Dollar General would be talking about the Lord. And the only time they wouldn't be talking about the Lord was when they had to ask you, is this all? Can I ring you up now? He's saying talk of anything other than the Lord would not even be tolerated. The Lord had so gripped entire communities the minds of the people were wonderfully taken off, of, off from the world. It was treated amongst us as a thing of very little consequence. In other words, the things of the world seemed of very little consequence. And he says this at the top in italics on the back page. The only thing in their view was to get the kingdom of heaven. And everyone appeared pressing into it. Can you imagine can you imagine how sweet that would be if that kind of revival swept over Trenton, swept over Todd County? You walk into the Traveler's Lantern, you walk into the post office, and you can't hardly even ask a question about your post office box renewal because everybody just wants to talk about the Lord. That would be an amazing thing. It would be an amazing thing. Here's the problem, though. The problem with the following Great Awakenings. You know, if you study U.S. history, there's the first Great Awakening, and that's kind of the big one. And then there's the second and the third, and some even say the fourth. The problem was that the following Great Awakenings weren't really examples of revival. They were more examples of revivalism. You see the difference there. Revival is a movement of God. Revivalism is an effort of man. See that? Um, the thought was that since certain effects 
were noticed, if we can just reproduce those, if we can just reverse engineer it, then it will mean that God is moving again, right? So, let's see, wait a second. Here, 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 here's a person that, that in the first Great Awakening, they became convicted that they didn't need to be, you know, doing X, Y, or Z anymore. So now, let's make sure nobody does X, Y, or Z, and maybe God will come back and bless it. You see how that, that river only runs one way from the hand of God. And, and this is kind of a picture of what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They think back to a time when the ark was there. Oh, the ark was there. God blessed us. So let's bring the ark back and maybe God will bless us again. And the ark of God was captured though. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Here's what we learn from this. We must be aware, wary of idolatry. God is less interested in the outward form than He is in the inward heart and the motivations of our worship. All of this, perhaps, it foreshadows Saul, who was intent, by the way, on performing the letter of the law. But he did not have the spirit of the law. Remember Saul? David, however, was a man after God's own heart. David, of course, an imperfect person, but... His heart motivations were rightly placed. We are constantly led to see which one God cares more about. I would read this to you from Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then also from John 4, Jesus said to her, uh, to the to the uh, the <clears throat> the Samaritan woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. I- I'm sorry. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And then we see here uh, this, this word about Eli. I'm trying to, I really need to help myself out and write down the verses when he arrived. Uh, let's see. Maybe about verse 17. Uh, oh, verse 13. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled from the ark, uh, for the ark of God. And when the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. I don't know about you all, but I kind of have a little soft spot in my heart for Eli. You know, the poor brother, he's just doing the best he can. I think he kind of knows what's right. He just doesn't quite have the heart to do it. He doesn't quite have the heart to rebuke his sons. You know, he, 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 his heart yearns for the ark of God, but he's just not quite motivated enough to make the hard decisions that are necessary to, to take care of his people, I guess. Um, here's Eli. Notice Eli. What is he doing when the man finds him at the gate of the city? He's sitting, waiting, watching. He's in the same condition we found him in in, first, in the beginning of 1 Samuel. He's sitting. Eli's per- Eli seems to be portrayed as always waiting around to be informed instead of actively going and doing He's waiting around for some news. 
even when the news seems is always bad. I'd say this, what we learned here, passive leadership begets or gives birth to moral decay. Passive leadership gives birth to moral decay. Nobody ever drifts into holiness. That stream only runs one way. Organizations, churches, this is the the water that I swim around in. It's just like an it's just like an old house, right? There are always cobwebs. Always cobwebs and the cobwebs are always I you know, my wife keeps a very clean house. I just noticed a cobweb today. You know, it's like they sneak up on you. And you gotta be vigilant. You gotta be you gotta be active. You gotta be going after them all the time. Or next thing you know, you're like, I got a house full of cobwebs now. Passive leadership uh, gives birth to moral decay. We've got to be always cleaning out the cobwebs so that we don't lose sight the way that Eli lost his sight. But then moral decay gives birth to spiritual powerlessness. Eli no longer has the power to do what he was called of God to do and he's about to get replaced because his passive leadership led to moral decay. His moral decay made him lose power the power that he had, the power that God intended him to have. And then spiritual powerlessness gives birth to a faithless generation. Friends, this is why we must be ever vigilant because we are given the responsibility to raise up another generation of our kids and our grandkids to understand the gospel and to believe it. Now, we can't make them believe, but we can put the gospel before them ever, asking God, oh God, would you send us an outpouring of your spirit just like you did in the 1740s in the day of Jonathan Edwards so that people would be so enraptured by who God is that it would totally transform the society. The last verse we'll consider. Are these words of uh, the daughter of, uh, help me out here, daughter of one of the sons of Eli, is that right? Thank you, thank you, Phineas' wife. So, yep, the daughter of one of Eli's sons, Phineas, or the, the wife of one of Eli's sons, Phineas, and she's about to give birth, and she says this very true thing, and she wraps up the, uh, the chapter for us. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This narrative, it continues to set before us the theme of the turning of a page. This moment seems like a, seems like a holdover from the time of the judges. And these are not my thoughts. It's Robert Chisholm, who I'm reading here. He points this out. The people in the time of the judges, the, the people are constantly suffering for the evil that they will not purge out from among their midst. And that's what's happening here. Noticeably, Samuel is absent in this chapter, right? Except for that very first verse, all of the bad stuff happens and there's never even a mention of Samuel. You know, he's like, his fingerprints aren't on the murder weapon. All of this has to do with the immoral leadership of Eli and his sons. The contrast between faithful Samuel... And faithless Eli, and moreover Hophni and Phinehas, continues to, it prepares us to expect a brighter future. And so, that's why I would tell you, come back next week. And you can see some of the bright, it's been a kind of a depressing lesson, but I can only do one chapter at a time, so come back next week and you will get 
the better news. But let's finish this way with the application. What, how can we apply 1 Samuel chapter 4? What can we do? How can we let the rubber meet the road in our lives? Well, first off, unrepentant sin cannot be tolerated among the people of God without there being consequences. There are churches all over this land who are suffering. And the reason that they're suffering is because they are allowing unrepentant sin to continue in their congregations. And they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And it drains their power. And it drains their witness. Secondly, godly leadership confers health upon the people while passive leadership invites all kinds of trouble. There's the cobwebs again. And then behind the scenes, the last one, behind the scenes of human sin and success is a God who is sovereignly ordaining His gracious ends. Do you think God is going to allow His ark to be held in the hands of the enemies forever? No, because He has promises that He has made to His people and God will not sleep on His promises. And I hope that that truth will help you sleep tonight. That God will not sleep on you and He will not sleep on the promises He has made to His church. Let's pray and we will be uh, finished after one more song of reflection. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you how, while it can seem very far removed from our day to day, it is just as apt and just as applicable today as it has ever been. And so, God, we submit ourselves to it. We ask you, God, help us to learn the lessons from the Old Testament and from the New Testament that we need in order to live lives set apart to you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.